Hello and welcome to the Potshot Podcast, an Arsenal podcast for nerds. I'm Alex Towles. And I'm Alex Collins. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at Alex Towles, Collins at AlexFRCO, and the pod itself at PotshotPod. So Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks, Alex slash Towles. Um, been a long day, but I've been looking forward to being able to ramble with you about Arsenal. So yeah, good end to it, hopefully. And yourself, how are you doing? Oh yeah, I'm, ha- I'm having a lovely day. It's been pretty productive, uh, and I'm definitely looking forward to uh, long and winding conversations about Arteta's Arsenal. <laughs> On the pod today, we are going to have a look back at Arsenal 4, Leicester City 2, and use the game to kind of give ourselves a tactical overview of how we think Arteta's side are going to play throughout this season. We're also going to look ahead to next week's game away at Bournemouth, uh, and we're going to talk about the other sports that we do in the non-Arsenal bit at the end of the show. Hello, Editing Towels here. Just to let you know that we are now on Spotify, so if you look up Potshop Podcast, on Spotify, you will find us. There's something weird going on with the first episode where it only looks like it's two minutes long when you first load it up, but if you click on it and play the episode, you will get the full episode, so don't worry about it. Hopefully, no such issues with this episode or any episode on from now. On with the show. Right, let's get on to the game. Uh, we smushed them. We just absolutely smushed them. 4-2 doesn't really tell the story of the game, because if it did tell the story of the game, it would have been a lot more like 4-1 or 4-0. Yeah, I think it was it was a pretty dominant performance from us. I think, yeah, the, the goals we let in, we shouldn't have really let in. I think we also could have scored a lot more. Um, it's always easy to say that. I'm not really sure what the XG is, but we were very dominant. And yeah, I think I think... We we never I, we never really felt out of control, which is funny considering we actually conceded. You know, it was two one at one point, that, and then and then it was what three two. So so you know, normally I feel those would be more nervy, but actually, I never really felt those nerves even really creeping in. So so it was a, it was a pleasant watch. Yeah, absolutely, and it's quite nice to be able to say that we were in control the whole game as well. When so much of the conversation around the Palace game last week. Uh, was about the fact that we ceded that control a bit in the second half. Whereas this game, none of that. We smushed them for 90 (laughs) minutes, and it was pretty, pretty sexy. So let's go on to looking at the tactics behind Arsenal's win. Uh, Before we do, we're going to actually look back at last season, and Alex is going to take us through uh, how we played last year, just so we can look at this game through the lens of how we did things differently. So, Alex, how was the Arteta Arsenal of 2021-22? Yeah, I think we should have probably done this last pod, but it's probably a good time to do it now. After two games, we've also got more of a sense. Um, Yeah, just to run through at least my interpretation, I think one thing that's become very clear is Arteta's positional system's always been about and is about having security um, and, like, control and dominance in, in sort of every phase is what he's aiming for. But just having that security, um, yeah, which which comes into that, it's very important to have a good rest defense, which is basically the players um, being prepared to kind of go back into a defensive structure while you're still in possession, ready for that counter-press or whatever. Um, in terms of our build-up play uh, last season, which I think we'll we'll talk more about again this, this game, because that seems to be changing. But last season, it was generally a 3-2 in, in the earlier phase. Um, 
with both C- both center backs and one fullback making up that back three. Um, and it was kind of like a, almost a pendulum motion in, in the way in which it could be both Tommy, it could be Tommy or Kieran Tierney. Um, and even when Cedric was there, um, obviously Nuno did, is a different kind of fullback, which is why he didn't really fit that. But Cedric was another one who could kind of be part of that back three as well. Um, and then of course, when one was part of the back three, the other guy was pushing forward, right? That's not something we're seeing here. So we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, then in final third, I think, especially in like settled possession phases, it could be quite stale if our players went up to it, which kind of points to how dependent we were on just like the qualitative superiority of our players. Um, and all about kind of carving out those small advantages, um, which kind of led to that right-sided bias, which we spoke about last, the last episode as well. But yeah, that right-sided bias, especially with Odegaard and Saka linking up, we were very dependent on that. I think just in being able to carve out those 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 chances, right? Yeah, we definitely, last season, we relied too much sometimes on the individual abilities of players like Saka, like Erdegaard, to get through deep blocks, uh, which meant that when they weren't on form, which did happen because they're young players, they're not going to be on fire every single game, uh, we really, really struggled to get through some defences. Uh, and as we'll get on to later, it seems we have a few more tools in the toolbox this time around. I think that was also especially true of like Odegaard. I think our best sort of form last season was when he was on it. And then, especially he's kind of a confidence player, when he was lacking that confidence, like our whole attack kind of slows a bit down a bit and becomes less, you know, incisive. So I think we've, we've become less dependent on, on that, which is nice. Um, where we were good, I always thought, it was in attacking transitions. Um, especially from a structural perspective. Again, this plays back into Arteta's sort of security at all times. We never really overcommitted. We usually, well, almost always only really committed five players forward, um, like fully attacking, you know, normally in like a, you know, what you would call like a W shape where you have like three guys kind of pinning the back line and then two guys a little bit more staggered to be able to kind of create those like positional advantages which was basically where we were best generally. And I think also kind of why Arteta liked to kind of allow teams to attack so that we could hit them in transition. And that's still something that's probably true now. Um, he also touched on it a bit earlier, but with the rest defense, we had a very good counter press. Also Odegaard, I think he's very, very good counter presser. Um, so that was another thing, way in which we broke teams down. Um, and then yeah, pressing defense, I think we, that's been a big, sort of discussion point throughout Arteta's reign, but I always liked our pressing. Um, generally flexible, so game to game. Sometimes we were intense, sometimes we were less intense, but I think we had a very good understanding of when to launch the press, right? Uh, otherwise, our, our blocks, everyone, our famed deep block where we only have, when we're one man down, so yeah. Let me not go too much into that. Um, but yeah, that was kind of what we looked like. I think, basically, my, my biggest question was, as you were kind of pointing out, is that it was that settled possessions phase where we looked a lot more stale and almost too safe, which is part of kind of came with Arteta's security at all times sort of thing. So yeah, there we have it. Last year's Arsenal pressed a bit, but not too much. We had control of games, but not all the time. Uh, And we attacked, but not always greatly. Uh, But (laughs) this season, we are two games in. We've won both of them. And in both games, we've played the same 11, trying to 
for muddle our way through similar ideas. Uh, and so what we're going to do for the next little while in the pod is steal an idea wholesale from some of our friends. Uh, if you guys are in the same uh, footballing spheres as we are, then I'm sure you're aware of the Devils in the Details podcast, which has been recently started up by our friends Case and Aaron. Uh, if you're not, go listen to that. Uh, and if you are, you'll be aware that in their last episode, they went through every single player in the Manchester United starting eleven uh, for their game against Brighton in to open the season uh, and talked about like their opinions on how they played uh, and if they were good or not, basically. Uh, and we're going to do exactly the same thing. However, our job is made a lot easier by the fact that we weren't dog shit like United were. <laughs> So shall we start off with Ramsdale, I guess? Let's move from the back. Or do we pick up more important players? What do you want? Which way do you want to do it? Let, let's go back to front, starting with the man, the myth, the legend, Aaron Ramsdale. Between the <laughs> sticks. Cost like a billion pounds, but it's worth it because he can pass a football. Yeah, I think he had, um, ultimately... I think with I'm not a goalkeeper guy, but I think when you when you concede a goal like the second one, it wasn't great. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel like maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm being too harsh because I don't know. Madison hit it well, but like yeah, he just wasn't set up well for it, so he conceded. But other than that, I think if we judge him over both games, I think he's been good, um, mm-hmm. especially with his passing. I also think his shot stopping was really good um, versus Palace. Um, again, he also had a, uh, a moment versus Palace where he, I can't even remember who, but he, I think it was Edward, he kind of just kicked the ball, he was trying to clear it like he does, and hit it straight into Edward. So he has those moments in him, um, but I think he's been good. Yeah, but uh, I think he, he's been good. Now, he, he's, what we've seen last season, uh, and before in his career, before he joined Arsenal, is he does have a tendency to be a bit streaky with his form. Like, he'll have a run of five, ten games where he does really well with his shot stopping. And then he has a run of five, ten, fifteen games where he's not such a great shot stopper. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that we can get away with due to the fact that he's so good on the ball at the moment. But if we start to really push on as a side... Uh, and start to look at being third or second in the league as the aim, as opposed to maybe fourth, then that's something we might have to either iron out of Ramsdale's game or start to look for someone who doesn't have runs of games where he's not good every season. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I can't really say I have a focus on Ramsdale before we signed him. I didn't even really have... I had no opinion on him when we signed him, apart from knowing that people didn't like how we signed him. Uh, but I do kind of have some sort of theory that last season, because he did have that injury, he didn't play versus Villa, and then he came back and he looked a lot worse, especially his kicking, and he was often kind of like tendering, tending to his like his hips. So I do feel that maybe there was an injury that was putting him off, and we kind of decided that we had to play him through that injury, um, because Leno just can't can't distribute like he can, right? Uh, or really claim crosses like he can. So... I I wonder how much of that came down to his injury, that loss of form. But when you kind of, you know, put that against his previous sort of seasons where he's had those like big dips of form, supposedly, oh, looking at the data, it certainly looks like it. And then really good form, it does kind of suggest a streaky keeper. 
So, yeah, we'll see. Um, I think he's also a confidence guy for sure. I think that played into it. So maybe it was the injury and then not coming back well from the injury. And then, yeah, you know, we, he did some really, like, made some really poor decisions on the, on the back end of last season. Um, I'm sorry, he's one of the players I'm most interested in seeing how, how it pans out. It's really good to see uh, how good his distribution is again. I also think that kind of tailed off last season a bit, right? But I mean, yeah. Uh, what was it yesterday Saturday was just great to see him like how he was managing to distribute into Martinelli into to Gabby J J um Saka as well I think Saka struggles to receive his balls a bit I think that might be more of a Saka problem but it was really good to see yeah absolutely uh and in the context of uh well at the time that we signed him especially for the price tag that we signed him I know I wasn't sure uh but yeah. I think <laughs> In the last year, and especially recently, by recent events uh, at everybody's favourite team that plays in Red in Manchester, uh, we've seen how important it is to have a goalkeeper who's got that distribution in his locker, uh, and how much that affects your ability to play the kind of football that teams want to play at the top end of professional football these days uh, and so as time's worn on even if he is a little streaky I think the money was definitely worth it on Ramsdale for that ability he has with the ball at his feet. And moving on to our right back Ben White, Benjamin White, uh, Sabbath kill me for calling him Ben, Benjamin White <laughs> uh, who's Nominally a centre-back, playing at right-back for us. Before we dive into White specifically, I think it's worth talking about how our full-backs play at the moment. Because as you said earlier, Alex, last season we played in a 3-2 structure, where our full-backs would... One would push up and be part of the attack, and one would drop in next to the centre-backs to form a back three with the double pivot in front of them. Whereas what we're seeing this season is both fullbacks pushing up and in to sit alongside Thomas Partey and the two centre-backs, well, the two centre-backs staying back because that's what the centre-backs do, uh, to form a 2-3 structure instead. Uh, and Ben White has been a key, if not, not particularly visible, part of that structure like I, I think what possibly one of the most positive things we could say about him is there isn't much to say about him he's slotted into that role and done it really unspectacularly fine like there's, he hasn't been bad he hasn't been absurdly great he's been there and he's done it I think he's been pretty good to be fair to him in the in the two three um I mean for what it for what it is uh for the control that we, we, we're trying to go for, right? You're kind of trying to get a bit more coverage a little bit higher up ahead of the centre-backs now. And yeah, he's he's providing that nicely. I think what we saw in possession was maybe a bit more than than versus Palace, uh, mm -hmm. where he was trying to play a, little, a lot more direct balls. I think that was that was a trend of, uh, of what we were doing um, versus Leicester, but uh, compared to how we normally play, uh, Partey was doing the same. Uh, so I think he did a pretty good job, um, and obviously he he's good in possession. We know that. I think out of possession, <laughs> I guess we didn't see too much of him because they didn't really target that area a lot, um, except for sort of those later run, like later on the pitch 
when they're trying to go like far back post to to Justin. But but yeah, they didn't really try to target that like early in transitions. Um, so yeah, it was kind of it was a quieter day than than he had versus um, Zaha the week before for sure. Um, but overall, I I actually I quite liked him in that system to be honest, and I think I think he fits it really nicely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. He does. He he's got his job, and he does his job well. Uh, but he doesn't stand out anywhere near as much as the man on the opposite flank, Alexander Zinchenko, who <laughs> has just been on fire these last two games. He has been all over the left flank and the middle of the park as well, like interchanging with basically anyone who he locks eyes with. It seems like, 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 like I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him rock up on the right wing with Bakayo Saka dropping in at left back at some point next game. That's how, that's how wild he's been with his rotations. It's been yeah. incredible to see. I've, I've loved Zinchenko, man. I mean, I think you, I said as much last week, right? But I mean, for his first game versus Palace, I think we already saw what he was going to bring. Um, I actually think he was maybe a little bit more out of sync with the rest of the team. He, you know, he didn't realize some passes were coming, but he looked, he looked so slick today. Um, well, today I say this, but two days later, he looked so good on, on, on Saturday. Um, with just the way that he was kind of being able to combine with everyone he can pull out wide. He's very good at sort of understanding of what kind of pockets he needs to be in as well, which is nice because we also have that in Odegaard, someone who's also very positionally intelligent, I think, in possession. So it, it has like a nice sort of balance, obviously, with guys. Who, who have so much mobility in Gabby Jesus and Martinelli um, being able to move around. It gives him a lot of abilities to kind of, yeah, just find those spaces, find those runners. Um, I do think it's natural that we kind of see a lot more of him than we would have of White because even though both interiors and neither are really providing like outlets or overlapping, I mean, you get a little bit from, from Sincheco, not really anything from White, but... Sinchenko is being used as the more attacking piece, and there are more interesting rotations for him on that side, as well as him just being tactically flexible enough to be able to, you know, to play a lot higher than, than White would. So yeah, I, I've really enjoyed him. Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's been really fun to watch. And like, I, I think like the level to which like he's really fluid in his attacking movements is definitely a positive hangover from the fact that he spent his time <laughs> coming through at Manchester City under Pep, right? Like, that's... He, he doesn't... He, he's come in and Arteta knows that he knows exactly where to be, what spaces to pick up, as you said. Uh, and we've been using that to really, really good effect to really level up our threat down the left-hand side. But it's not all been positive, like, due to the fact that he's been pushing up a little bit higher than we might expect, especially later in games when he's not perhaps got enough in the tank to be able to run back, we have seen that the channel behind him has been exploitable, like Leicester City did for their second goal in the game on Saturday. Madison playing Iheanacho through literally exactly behind Zinchenko. Zinchenko doing really well to recover, to be fair, and get back goal side of Iheanacho, but because he'd left that space, it meant that there was room for Madison to then overlap again, pick up the ball on a 1-2, and then fire past Ramsdale. So 
Do you think that Zinchenko getting caught high is going to be a consistent problem this season, or is that like a one-time thing because he was tired? Oh yeah, no, we were we were vulnerable in the channels versus Palace too, right? So I don't think it's a one-time thing at all. I do think it's actually a structural thing from from Arteta with the two-three to kind of have more coverage of, of the width of the area, a little bit higher up in the midfield. We're conceding a little bit less control in those wide areas in transition. Um, and yeah, Zinchenko's not as good defensively as Tierney is. I don't think that's really that um, controversial to say. So it is something that's going to be a thing throughout the season. What I'm more interested in, maybe it's a good thing to, I'll take the sort of um, the host thing, but we move on to Gabriel. It's that relationship, right? Because when Gabriel has Tierney next to him, he's very, very solid defensively. And I don't just mean he's, he's having his hand held, but Tierney protects the sort of areas that I don't think Gabriel's that good at. I think Gabriel's very good defensively of the perimeter when balls come in, but also kind of controlling that left space when it's close to goal. But have, when he has to go out towards goal, I think he struggles. He's very easy to beat 1v1. Um, yeah, he's just a bit clumsy. He's not very good at turning. So he's quite easy to get done in those areas. And I think that's also what makes us so vulnerable in that area. I mean, you can compare it to Saliba. I think Saliba's very good at covering out wide, right? And it's kind of night and day in the way that Saliba can get to protect those areas versus how Gabriel does. And that is probably my biggest concern going forward for how we how we handle that this season. Because I do see... I don't see Arteta really wanting to to play Tierney as much just because of what we can do in possession with Sinchenko. Yeah, and let, let's come back inside a little bit more and talk about the centre-backs. And you've talked a bit about a problem that Gabriel might have this season defending defending that channel once they've got past Sinchenko, which might be a little bit easier than we may like. Uh, but let, let's focus on the good things, because he is still a very, very good centre-back. Yeah, I think, I think I mean, everyone knows that I'm a big fan of Gabriel, always have been. I've never really viewed him as, like, the guy to lead a title-winning defense. I, I, he's not that kind of, he's not that good, to be frank. But I think he's a very, very good number two centre-back in a way. Um, and obviously, Arteta's a big fan of him. I, I think he's very safe in his position because of how important that left foot is to Arteta. And being able to kind of feed that outside channel now with Senchenko there. So I don't think he's under threat. Um, of being dropped because of that vulnerability, unless we bring in another left footer, which it doesn't look like we are this window. Um, so yeah, it's something we're going to have to deal with. What I do find interesting is how much space he, he gets going forward. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's nice. I think he plays those outside channels really well. I think he carries forward well enough. I have some concerns that he does he can get caught up. And I think he gets high enough that he kind of gets this sort of like feeling like, okay, let me just push a little bit further because he, he doesn't see those those passes available to him as he gets high on the pitch that he does deeper. So what he decides is try to push a bit further. That's not a good thing. Um, they had one moment where they did catch us out there. And then I think they messed up the ball to get past and Zinchenko kind of managed to to feed it back to Ramsdale. That's something I'm, I think he might get caught on in possession. The other problem I have is he's not very good on that switch. Yeah, he's not really got a good diag in his locker, as the pros call it. Not at all. And I think that's a shame, because if we have a left footer who can do that, that would be great. Running into that space, being able to feed the diag, that sort of that sort of play would be great. But let's not take away, though, from the fact that him stepping forward 
and being able to play the line-breaking passes that he does have in his locker is one of the main ways that we get the ball into the final third. Like, him getting balls into particularly Jesus, Erdegaard, in behind to Martinelli, those were some of the main ways that we got ourselves into the attacking third against Leicester, and I think it's going to be a real theme that we see this season. Unless we're coming up against a team like maybe Brighton, who might actively look to stop him from doing that like they actively stopped Martinez from doing it. Moving on to Gabriel's defensive partner, a man who's quickly becoming my favourite centre-back in this backline after two games, which is a very good sign considering in one of those games he scored an own goal. <laughs> it's William Saliba. Uh, he's really, really shown himself to be so confident uh, and so assured in that backline. Uh, what I wrote down in my notes for the game, and this might feel a little harsh, is that he's like an anti-Harry Maguire, because one of the things that people know about Harry Maguire is that even when he is playing well, he does he looks a little bit janky almost on the ball. He looks clunky. He doesn't look like a Rolls-Royce centre-back, which is exactly the opposite of what William Saliba is. He looks so calm, so composed, everything he does. Even scoring an own goal, he did it with this kind of nonchalant charm. Like, <laughs> he's so good. Uh, I, I, yeah, I can that... wax lyrical about this man for a long time, and I know you really want to as well, because you actually watch French football. Yeah, I'm, d I'm just glad to see him playing. Um, even just to add to the own goal thing, I don't think it's a major point. Maybe it is. We can speak a bit about his aerial stuff, because I think that comes into it. Um, in terms of his weaknesses and where he has to improve. Yeah, you you know I described it at the time as a lol whoops. Yeah, <laughs> but but I think it's just good to see him playing. And just as a side point, I really enjoyed about the own goal. Is like we kind of clapped him afterwards. I thought that was yeah. pretty cool from a non-analytical whatever perspective. I thought that was pretty cool, and it kind of it's a it's an indication of where the club is in terms of like the vibes, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, Saliba overall, I think. He did really, really well. I'm actually going to take from what, what a commentator said in that match, because I think it was a really good way of describing him, is he's really good at measuring his duels. Like, we know he's really good at reading the game, but also just when he enters those challenges, he doesn't really overcommit. Um, but he does enough to kind of put off his, his man, right? But he, he kind of knows how much pressure he needs to put on, knows not to overcommit, knows to keep it kind of clean. Um, and I think that really helps in the back line that we have, especially both Gabriel and... And White tend to like to come towards. I think a nice thing about Saliba is he can actually sweep up behind, which is how we have been using him, right? I mean, it was how Sampaoli used him as basically the last line thing. They played a very high line at Marseille and he protected all that space behind. It's something nice that we have now with our centre-back, uh, mm. with Saliba being our centre-back, right? Um, but yeah, it looks good. I think maybe we can add to the own goal stuff, because... Before we dive into exactly what we think about the own goal, let, let's describe the situation, just in case you haven't actually seen it. A ball comes across uh, from the wide left, from someone I don't remember who played it, uh, aiming towards Jamie Vardy, like in like a transition opportunity. Uh, and Saliba, like, he, he doesn't really have a choice here, right? Like, if he doesn't get something on the ball, Vardy gets the ball and he scores a goal. 
uh, and like he kind of has two options. He can put his head on the ball and try to head it away from the goal, or he can put the head on his ball, his head on the ball, and try and head it into the arms of Aaron Ramsdale because if you head the ball back to your keeper, it's fine. Uh, and he's like very clearly caught in two minds, at least to me, about which one of these things to do, and then instead puts it perfectly in between those two options, not away from the goal, not into the arms of Ramsdale, perfectly past Ramsdale, into the bottom corner of the goal, uh, which is the kind of the kind of mistake that is like. Nah, that happens sometimes. Like <laughs> it's a split second decision you've got to make in the moment, and he didn't make it instantly, and then got unlucky. I think I think we can say that he handled it pretty poorly, though. I think most most ninety nine percent of centre backs do a better job there, um, and I think that does come from from one thing with Saliba is he's not great at judging aerial balls. He's never he never has been. Um, and that's probably the, that's the main reason why he's had aerial issues in his career so far. It's not, it's not to do with frame. It's not to do with jump. Um, it's to do with judging aerial balls and maybe judging when to jump. I think that was, that was an example of that. Yeah. He had like a split second to decide what to do and it yeah. took him a little longer than it may do most center backs. Uh, and that's where he messed up. A hundred percent on commitment, but also just like the angling. It just, it, it looked a bit. It looked cool, like you said. It actually, he didn't look bad doing it, but it, yeah. it obviously wasn't. It was, it was yeah, a bad the, outcome. The classic saying is, if this was, if this was the other end, it would be a great finish. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Moving forward again, uh, we come to what was once a double pivot with uh, Granite Xhaka and Thomas Partey, but Xhaka, as we'll come on to later, has moved much further up the pitch in these first two games, leaving Thomas Partey to be a single pivot in front of our back line, he's got one job, and it is to collect the ball and move it forward, and he's very good at it. Uh, this is on the ball, of course. When he's off the ball, he's got other jobs, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what we saw from him in the game, I touched on it a bit with White, but we were using him to play a lot more, or far more direct balls, mm. um, to challenge to challenge Leicester's um, defensive block, and it worked. Um, a lot, yeah. Um, like there was a lot. There was a lot of get balls like fired into Jesus's feet. Mm. There was that chance really early on where Granite Xhaka popped up in the nine spot because he played a really nice yeah. through ball. That if Xhaka had an extra yard of space, he would have been in on goal in like within the first like five minutes of the game. Like Partey picking up the ball, spotting a like pass through Leicester's lines, and just kitting it almost perfectly every time. It was a real three theme of the game. Yeah, I don't think he had a great second half. I think his, his passing was quite poor, made some poor decisions. But yeah, overall, a uh, solid game from him. Um, and obviously, he's a very important player for what we're trying to do. The issue is, it's only him. Uh, and we could really do with someone else able to do those things. Yeah, I would love I would love us to actually rather than an eight at this point. Maybe I'll regret saying this later in the season. I don't really think so. I'd much rather us have a six, so that if we don't have our first choice pivot, well, yeah, our first choice six, uh, so that if we don't have our first choice like defensive midfielder, that we actually do have someone who can step in and keep keep us performing the way we are because he is very important to what we do. Um. 
Yeah. Also, one thing I'll interest I'll say it was, it was kind of interesting. Like a lot of the focus has been on Jaku. Obviously, has been doing a lot of the, you know, those forward runs off ball. But you saw a bit of it. We did see a bit of it from from party in the second half, when Odegaard was kind of occupying left more of that left half space. You saw party coming forward. So it is something that we have an ability, obviously, to do on both sides. But obviously. With that sort of focus on security, Partey will largely be the guy who's collecting deeper. Speaking of focusing on Granite Xhaka, let's focus on Granite Xhaka. He had the kind of game which made you think, wow, that was really good. If we had someone whose quote-unquote natural position was doing the things that he did in the Leicester game, uh, we would have an absolutely incredible midfield. But we don't. We have Granite Xhaka, the deep orchestrator that we've used as a box-crashing eight, and I kind of really love it. Yeah, I really like how how we've, how we've been using him. Obviously, it's very clear what Arteta was looking for in that role, and I think, as a lot of people are saying, if we actually have someone who isn't Granite Xhaka, I think he's done a good job, of, of course, but if we actually have someone who can kind of be a proper like offensive eight. I can only imagine like the next level this team takes. But he's doing a great job there. He scored. Um did he get an assist? Yeah he did. For for not really a not really a late um arriving eight sort of thing, but I think he got the assist for the first goal as well. So good a good game for him in terms of output. Um we'll see how much it how it keep he keeps it up. But but yeah I really like I think the the most interesting stuff is sort of what he's doing in the second phase of possession which is where he, he kind of swaps out with Zinchenko at times to hold the width, um, also holding the width for Martinelli at times. So yeah, I think that's probably the most interesting stuff that we do with him. Yeah, and I do want to highlight that quickly, because, uh, like, as you said, he wasn't just pushing forward and getting into the box. He was also, when Zinchenko was underlapping and pushing forward, while inside, he would step out and back and fill in the space that you might expect a more traditional left-back to. 100%. Uh, And I think it's really interesting, in the play leading up to the goal that he scored, he actually has the ball in that left-back space, and then 10 seconds later, he's in the middle of the box scoring. Like, that's wild. Box to box, God. But yeah, no, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying him that role. I mean, I'm, I've always been a fan of Shaka. I think, I think he is. He's performed better in that role than I expected. Um, yeah, he's done well. We'll see. I mean, whether we keep going with him going forward into the season will be very interesting. I think he does offer that solidity defensively, maybe. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. He obviously has a cap on how on how effective he is going forward. And I do think, of course, the, that first thing that you spoke about, I think it happened about six minutes in, where number five played that ball um, for Xhaka. Good run. Tillemans really should have had him covered. But yeah, you would think that like if it was someone who was a bit quicker, so I'm not really sure Tillemans, I know he's the kind of guy who's yeah who's labeled to be like the guy who's supposed to be making that run, right? Um, but if you have someone who's a bit quicker better ball striking sort of stuff. Um, well, Jaka has pretty good ball striking, maybe I should say better goal scoring um, or getting in the box. Yeah, you feel like that would probably be a really good goal. Yeah, I think you touched on Tielemans a little bit there from a Leicester perspective. And obviously, 
all summer long he's been linked with us. Uh, less so this week. The links seem to have been quashed somewhat at the beginning of this week. Uh, but it's weird watching this game and like with my like preconceived notions of what Telemans is as a player. It's weird to think that he's the guy we're linked to for that role, because I see him more like the guy that Xhaka was last season than the Xhaka that we saw this game where he's running into the box. Like, I don't think Tielemann's the perfect shoe-in fit for that role either, and it's almost kind of weird that he's the guy we're going for for that. You know, can I say two things? Firstly, I kind of I, I understand why we won some rights, is that... I kind of do see it. I don't think he is that box-to-box like, but I'm not really sure that that's what Arteta wants. I kind of said maybe it was earlier, but I'm. I think what he what he wants first and foremost is he wants someone who can be who can make things happen in the final third, who can score, who can create passes, who can control things quite neatly in the final third with that you know nice close control technique, but also play in those deeper areas and kind of facilitate and dictate play, which is obviously what Shaka can do, right? So I think Tielemans fits in that he's able to do both of those things. But at the same time, like, just from this game, I mean, and, and from other games I've watched, but, like, for this game, I w- <sighs> there are things that really don't impress me about him. First of all, like, I, like his touch was kind of off this game. I think he improved after half time. He got subbed at, like, 60 minutes or whatever, and I think he played good from, he played well from 45 to 60. But the first 45 was really bad, and defensively, is why I just don't really understand why we want him because you can kind of say like I just don't actually see that 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 potential to really improve that much defensively, which obviously Arteta is good at kind of training that like sort of defensive side in. But he got he got sold really easily by Senchenko a couple times. Um, he was the guy who was supposed to be on on Xhaka for for that almost Xhaka run him on goal. Um, yeah, he just had a couple moments, and I think technically he's amazing at times, but he also, he can be a bit slack at times. So, yeah, I don't know. I see him, why he fits, but I, I'm not that convinced by the player, and this game really didn't convince me more. Yeah, Tielemans definitely seems like, uh, in, in a direct comparison to Xhaka, to me he seems like an extra 5% offensively, at the cost of like fifteen or twenty percent defensively. Yeah, he's probably a bit more than that offensively. Maybe, maybe in my opinion, I think there's also I will like one thing about him is that I think there is probably more to get out of him as a goal scorer than what we've got out of him. Which is funny to say because that's kind of what he's almost known as. But if you look at his totals, like I do think you can eke more out of that kind of ball striking um, from the positions that he gets, and maybe that's what Arteta sees, but. But yeah, I don't I don't see it I don't see him being worth it for the system overall. Obviously I'm also saying this bit like being a bit reductive because we don't have to play him every game. Same sort of thing with Sinchenko. I wouldn't be surprised to see us playing Tierney versus I don't know when our first big game is Spurs or Man United. I wouldn't be surprised to see Tierney starting that game if we need to defend the threat, right? Um and tighten up the flank. Same thing with with Telemans. You can kind of play him against Bournemouth and maybe not play him in, in the big game. So I'm being a bit reductive, but yeah, he doesn't seem like the value from any sort of guy that I'd want there. Moving on to the 
star man of the midfield, I think it's fair to say. Our captain, my captain, <laughs> Martin Erdegaard. What a guy. Uh, he, he's so he's so good. <laughs> I, I need to like add to my list of superlatives is what I'm learning this podcast. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, he's really good. Um, normally he plays on the right side of a midfield three, uh, but what we saw a lot against Leicester and against Palace is that all of the interesting stuff that he does comes up when he drifts over to that left-hand side, which allows him to combine with Martinelli, with Jesus, with Zinchenko, and with Xhaka at times as well. Uh, and his joining into those rotations is what takes them from pretty fun to really great at unlocking defences. Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably one of the more interesting things to take, especially even more so now compared to versus Palace. He's, he's tended more to play on the left um, or in those interchanges, which has been interesting. I mean, you kind of say, you speak about it as like a 4-3-3, which is what I think Arteta wants and has been going for before this season, right? But really, the, the way we kind of had like that that shape formation i know those things don't really exist because as we'll speak about it's a 4-2-3-1 in a way like the way that uh, that odegaard's been playing obviously it doesn't exist because like you've got jaka and zinchenko like exchanging and like moving on in those sort of areas right especially in that like middle third but it, it's been interesting as, as some good friends of ours would say positions are fake <laughs> i'm certainly a proponent of that i'm not gonna lie um but yeah, so it's been very interesting. Um, I will say, I've, I think he's had a quiet start to the season. I think a lot of what he does is very important to how he plays. So, like, you know, those two things are worth, like, waiting against each other. But but he hasn't really had, like, as much of an impact as I'd want yet. Um, I think he's just started slow. I'm not too worried at this point. But But yeah, it's been interesting to see how much he's come to the left. I really enjoyed some of those those layoffs what he's really good at is just receiving those tight spaces those quick layoffs um to kind of play in those runners so yeah i've i've been i've enjoyed i've enjoyed what he's kind of how we're using him coming left obviously it does come with that that downside of like how isolated it feels or uninvolved maybe i should say it feels like sake is at the moment with with odegaard coming so far left but but it's been nice to kind of see all of these technicians kind of controlling and, and just how unpredictable that makes us in terms of the rotations that we're, we're managing to forge. Yeah, I think it's worth touching on that again, right? Because as you said, when we were talking about last season's tactics, one of the best things about our attack last season were the combinations between Saka and Erdogan on that right-hand side and how we used those uh, and their individual qualities as players to unlock defences. Uh, and this season, and when we were talking last week, and when we were talking during the game this weekend, we were like, oh, Odegaard doesn't really seem to be appearing on the right-hand side. He's not doing anything over there. Why isn't he there? And yeah. <laughs> then looking back on it, he is. Like, he's still over on the right-hand side a lot of the time. He's spending a lot of time in that right half-space. We're just not noticing it at the time because nothing interesting's happening while he's there. All of the stuff which makes you sit up and notice that Martin Odegaard is on the pitch, 
he's doing over on the left-hand side, even though he's spending probably majority of his time over on the other side of the pitch. Which, do you think that's concerning? I, I don't know how much I would say concerning. It's going to be interesting. It's a concern in the sense that I, I wonder what we're going to do about this, or I wonder if it'll become a problem, rather than necessarily thinking it is. I do think it's a bit sad, like, I really enjoyed that Odegaard and Saka sort of that, yeah, basically that chemistry and dynamic between them to create those small, like, sort of advantages. It's interesting, like, the whole time last season I was speaking about, and I, it, like, uh, the whole time last season I was speaking about, like, how much, like, we were so, we were too right leaning and that we didn't really have, you know, if you could close off that avenue, we really struggled. If you, if you managed to suffocate Odegaard, we really struggled. Um, and it's interesting now that we've got everything happening on the left. And I'll say, like, what's happening on the left in terms of, like, system looks far more effective than what we were doing on the right last season. We were depending on players. Now we have really nice rotations, right? Obviously, the player quality allows for that. But it's kind of sad that we don't, we aren't managing to, to funnel down both sides and move. How much of that is, like, a concern? Maybe, maybe we're just trying to focus on these sides at the moment. Maybe it's not really a problem. Saka is doing a better job at like holding that width up the right on the right than Martinelli was last season, right? Because I really didn't like Martinelli holding that far wide. It felt like necessary for the system, but not really a great use of the player. Saka still can be used well. I just think it hasn't happened yet. We'll we'll kind of see. The main problem, which we, we touched on last part, is that you don't get that Odegaard rotation out to hold the width with Saka coming inside and then Odegaard trying to find that underlapping run, which is what we spammed last season at times. We did see it a couple times, I think, during the Leicester game. There's one specific moment I remember uh, which led to another chance for Granit Xhaka, actually, where uh, Odegaard pulled out right, uh, Saka tucks inside to that kind of the, the the zone that's become almost known in the analytics sphere as like the the KDB zone the Trent zone that bit just in in the right half space but not in the box just outside of the attacking box and plays a wonderful left-footed cross over to the back post where Granite Jacker pops up because of course he does uh, and pings the ball off the post uh, and like I, I think like we we had I think that was the main time when I noticed it during the game that that rotation happening. I th- I think you're right. I forgot to I forgot to note down how, like who was actually rotating up, but mm. I think you are right. But you see, like I think it would be really it's one thing that I want to see, and I think right now it'll be interesting to see like if teams are now setting up because I think we 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 maybe have caught like teams by surprise. Yeah, but obviously against Palace there were sort of things like you can say that the that the Anderson and Klein side is a lot easier to break down than the Guhi and uh, Mitchell side, right? Mm. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's the same thing again this time. I'm not so sure. Um, but it'll be interesting. But yeah, when you get those rotations, I think they work really nicely. And being able to have like sort of all of these moving parts on both sides should be the end goal. It's something City managed to achieve. So I think that's the next step in the evolution. It's just interesting that one part that was strong last season We've kind of used it as like the the switch now, like the, where we had left as the being able to switch quickly. Now we have it as the right and we're isolating sucker. I, I think it's worth noting, like, I, I think part of the reason why we're doing it a lot more on the left-hand side here is just 
sheer volume of good guys that can do the thing. Uh, like, with Sinchenko over there, Xhaka, Martinelli, Jesus, who likes to drift left, and Odegaard coming over there as well. That's five guys who can all be moving around and confounding defences. Whereas over on the right-hand side, we've got maybe, like, like maximum three, maybe four if Tommy Asu's on the pitch, like, with, um, with Jesus coming over to the right instead. Uh, because, like, I don't think Ben, Ben White's not gonna be getting involved in those, because he is still a centre-back. Like, there's not a bad thing, I just don't see him doing it. I mean, last season he, he was playing, even as a centre-back, he was moving high up into those, like, half-spaces, right? So, I, th- I think it's something he can do, but obviously it's not holding the width in the way that we try to, to stretch, to stretch defences. So, yeah, for sure. And that actually leads me to, like, a question for you is, Okay, obviously Tomiyasu isn't like that sort of overlapping guy at all. But he is someone that we used a lot to, to hold with wider, especially earlier last season, right? Do you think that's someone worth bringing in over over um, Ben White? Because the one side of it is that he can do that. Um, I think he's probably better at defending channels. The other side of it is that we don't really have that 2-3 as much. I don't really see... Uh, maybe. That maybe he can be in that 2-3. But I would see it more, it leans itself more and did last season to being a 3-2. But maybe I'm just trying to overthink it or, or think of problems why. I, I think I want to see Tomiyasu starting a football match before we can really answer whether or not yeah, it's going to affect the 2-3 versus 3-2 setup of the back line. Yeah, I sort of changed my mind halfway through yeah. because I can actually see it working. But less less from a... The way that Ben mm. progresses, obviously. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I think the key part, uh, and I'm going to state the obvious, is that Tomiyasu is a right back, whereas Ben White is a centre back playing right back. Yeah, but you see, we just spoke about how positions are. Yeah, not I real, know, so. but still, <laughs> like, I like positions aren't real, but Tomiyasu as because he's been playing a role. Where we, where he's expected to push up the pitch in that way and do those wide combinations more. He's more natural at it in a way that Ben White isn't. He can do it. And like, even when, like, like he came through at Brighton, right? Where he would play into the black back three and pushed up a lot. Like, he's not not pushing forward. It's just that in the way that he's doing it, he's not getting involved in these rotations and interchanges in the same way that we'd expect from. Uh, Zinchenko on the other side, and that's not like a bad thing from him. It's just like he's not been doing it for five years in the same way Zinchenko has. Uh, and Tomiyasu, again, he's not been doing it for five years in the same way Zinchenko has, but I feel like it's, it would come a little bit more naturally to him because he is more used to going down the outside than Ben White would be. Yeah, so I I I tend to agree with you. I just think that the, it'll be interesting to kind of see how it plays out because... Ben White does really tend, in terms of possessionally, and finding those central areas, which we were doing a lot versus Leicester. I don't think Tommy would have done something like that. Yeah. Um. I think I think I see them potentially being, but like more of a something that Arteta is willing to like rotate game on game than I do actually with Zinchenko and Tierney, right? Um. So it'll be interesting to see. The other aspect of it is obviously Arteta also loves Ben White. But yeah. yeah, we were speaking about we were speaking about midfielders and I brought it back to defense. So I apologize. It's fine. <laughs> so nine players down, two to go. 
let's move across to the other wing, uh, onto Gabriel Martinelli. And I don't think, I don't think we need to talk much, like, in terms of system tactics here, because we've talked about that left flank already and how much he's, uh, like, how much rotation's been happening, like, around Martinelli. And of course, he's been a really active part of that. Um, one thing I do want to highlight is just how deep and central he came at times. Like, it's not a surprise that he popped up in central areas like pushing the back line in the way that we'd expect Jesus to, with Jesus cropping up on the right, on the left wing, sorry. Uh, but what did surprise me was that one point in the game, so, th this is a very specific point, and I don't think it happened more than once, but there was a point where Gabby Jesus was the left winger, uh, Martinelli was, like, deep and central in, like, not even, like, a 10 space, like, more of an 8 space, like, really deep and central, and Granite Xhaka was leading the line, uh, and that was wild, <laughs> uh, but I think it just highlights how involved Martinelli was in our rotations, and it was one of those times when he came deep to find the ball, uh, that led to his goal, because obviously he collected the ball centrally, drifted across towards the left, and then fired across, fired a shot back across goal into the far corner. Really, really clean strike, by the way. Like, what a finish, being able to pick out that corner so accurately. But, but yeah, like, he was just missed a rotation all game, and it was very fun to watch. Yeah, so actually to pick out on, on you know, rather than him scoring the goal, which I, I agree, like, the, the striking technique was really great. Um, which hasn't always been there for him, but actually to go to him winning the ball, I really loved that sort of like, just that instinct or like ability to kind of snuff out, um, snuff out that there's going to be a chance. And he, yeah, obviously went back to fetch the ball. Um, I think it was Prayat. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. Who kind of wanted to let the ball run across him as it was arriving. And then Martinelli kind of came in, stole the ball, nicked it, and then just, got into the space to shoot. Um, but that's something we were seeing from him all game. It's almost like he has a bit more license to, to if he thinks he can go and like apply pressure to apply pressure, which is interesting. Maybe it's not, maybe it is under instruction, but, but there definitely seems to be some kind of like, you have the intensity to go and do things, go and do things, which is great. Um, the other part of the thing I want to speak about is just what a hard time he gave Wesley Fofana. Like he, he really punished Wesley Fofana a lot. Probably my favorite moment from him in that game was actually that early moment where he he received. Um, this was soon after Wesley Fofana had that little like shimmy run in on goal mm. and and shot. Um, it was a couple of minutes after that, but basically he received really tight to the line, mm. and he used his left foot on receiving to kind of clip the ball, like knock it into the path ahead of him, and then burst forward like chasing that that ball. Uh, I thought that was great. Like that's something that we didn't that's like something that we didn't used to see from Martinelli at all I still think he's quite rigid in the way he he like you know he, he's not a very fluid footballer like that but I always kind of have had doubts about how easily he'd be able to like change directions and stuff like that he obviously had the physical intensity for it but he's sort of figured out really nice technical ways of like being able to to create those like instant like chop angles right and and yeah, I really enjoyed that. He got he got Wesley Fofana yellowed from it because he just burst past him, and yeah, Fofana had to kind of pull him down because it was going to be a yeah, who's going to be in behind. So there's just a lot 
that Martinelli has in his game. Okay, one more thing. It's also <laughs> just how good is how good has his passing been? Oh like, yeah. Like how good is you're speaking from those deeper areas, but like he kind of might have like the best final ball <laughs> in the team right now, and I'm com- I'm including Odegaard in that Odegaard has very specific ones he can kind of make, but like Martinelli has a little bit more variety. Doesn't really look that way because he's a lot more stiff with it. So you kind of you get the sense that Odegaard's got like all these sorts of passes. But there are some that, as smooth as Odegaard can look on it, he doesn't really pull off. Whereas Martinelli seems to have a lot of variety variety in the way he can hit the ball. I've been really, really impressed with him. Like, I mean, yeah, just the rate that he's improved. I think one thing I remember from last season is that he, he brought that stop-start sort of play into his game um, where he would slow down and then accelerate. That's something Teta definitely taught him because I think it was Sterling from the past who kind of spoke about how Teta brought that sort of stop-start game with him. I think it was Sterling. I could be wrong. Could have been Sané. Someone someone Arteta worked with, right? Um, but it's just crazy. Like, he keeps adding these different things to his game that I didn't really see initially when he first came. Because he used to just be, like, all action. But now he's really smart about being all action. Like, it, it's, nice to, it's nice to see. He picks his moments a bit more. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I do... Uh, before we move on to Gabby Jesus, I, I just... There's one more more general thing I want to touch on, uh, because obviously when Martinelli scored, it was it was like really soon after a Leicester goal, and I actually wrote it down. Where did I write it down? Uh, yeah, it was one minute and forty seconds after Leicester's second <laughs> goal, Martinelli scored okay. our fourth, and like the speed and the attitude with which we responded to setbacks like the Leicester goals with alright, we'll just go and get another one in this game really impressed me like, the Arsenal team of last season doesn't do this, I don't think. I think the Arsenal team of last season concedes the first goal and we kind we would kind of retreat back into our shell a little bit and kind of just hold on to a one goal lead whereas what we did this game was explode back out the traps and grab a third and then Leicester scored again, and we exploded back out the traps and scored a four. Like, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, I really like how we're seeing this alongside, like, the fans and the stadium. I mean, the Emirates is a lot more active now than it it was even in, like, the Wenger years, right? It, it really feels like a ground that's a bit more intimidating to be at. So it's a really nice thing, and it actually does feel like something is happening here. And, yeah, seeing us respond like that when... Not just under, like, Emery, not just under, obviously, Arteta, not just under Freddie Longberg, like, but also under Wenger. It's, like, it's something we've had so long. Getting that sense that there is that steeliness is really is really nice, and it feels real rather than just outcome-based. Yeah, this, does, this doesn't feel like a fluke that we're only going to see in this game. It feels like going throughout the season, we have the confidence in our own ability to go out and reinstate either a lead or like further stretch a lead after conceding a goal it feels like we've got it in our locker now where we didn't before which is really really yeah, nice I, and i guess being ne- less narrative based it's just because we keep up our intensity a lot better now like even when we when we scored a goal like we we don't really let up i i suppose we should shove the one game caveat in this one because yeah that's true <laughs> we literally that's true. last See, now... week we're talking about how oh no we stopped to playing after 
half an hour. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? Uh, let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's put put a cap on ourselves. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, my bad. <laughs> uh, it's fine. Uh, it, it's very exciting. Arteta, please don't stop doing that. You'll make us look like idiots. Anyway, um, speaking of making people look like idiots, Gabriel Jesus made the entire Leicester backline look amateurish for 90 minutes. <laughs> He's so unbelievably good at the football. Um, is there anything more we can add that we haven't said already? Yeah, man, he was really, really good. I mean, the thing is, I was expecting him to be this good. I think we said this on the last part, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat it because it was another display. Like he's, he's a lot better than I thought he was gonna be, and it's really fun to watch. He really, he helped a lot with the rotations since we're trying to be like a little bit more understanding what the tactics are going forward for the season from these first two games. Obviously, caveat on it being first two games, but like you can see the way he did rotate. Some there were times when Saka came in that he he was holding the width out right, you know what I mean. I guess from like I think it's a good thing. It's obviously a good thing that we have that like unpredictability. But even then, I was feeling like, damn, I really wish he was in the middle because of how much damage he can do there. Like right, he's just so good. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how he keeps it up. I yeah. think some FPL person did a thread about like how streaky he can be and why like people shouldn't be worried about if they didn't choose him as their eight million forward. I'm not very good at FPL, so I'm not in a place to judge that properly. But I think it's dumb to not pick him as an 8 million forward anyways. But I think that is something like we also did see at City. So we need to hold our tongue a little bit because there were moments that he looked amazing at City. Um, but, I mean, the signs are good. Like, especially coming from his camp, he says he's a lot happier. He says he feels a lot more free. He says he feels like this is how his game should be. Um, and I do think when players say those things, like, that's a good sign, right? <laughs> they mean something. Yeah, they mean something. And I think, yeah, I mean, the system's built around him a bit more. He, he, he is the star piece of our attacking line in a way that he never was and never would be at Manchester City. And I think it really shows in the confidence that it's given him in his attacking movements. Obviously, he came with this reputation of a terrible finisher. We've seen him pull off some amazing finishes, but we've also seen him make some, like, m- crazy misses like that that one right at the end right before he got subbed what was around 80 minutes yeah where we played the, the goal was open for him yeah man very very sad for him yeah <laughs> we, we mean it when we say he could have had like five like I, I i saw someone tweet during the game i can't remember who it was i apologize if it was you uh that the uh that he was racking up all these high XG misses later in the game so that people didn't notice how much he overperformed on his XG <laughs> earlier in the match. That wasn't me. But yeah, he actually, he is under, he's, he's got 2.06 expected goals from this season so far. Mm. Fun facts. So he is underperforming XG actually. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyways, he's really good. Uh, but that's it. We've run through the whole first 11. And it's only taken us like an hour to get through all of that. Uh, So I hope it's been (laughs) fun and entertaining. Uh, We're going to take a break right here uh, because I don't, after all that, I don't think there's anything else either of us have to say about the Leicester match. Uh, We will come back with a very brief preview of the Bournemouth game next weekend. See you in a sec. And we are back. Hope you enjoyed the uh, jazzy five-second musical interlude you got in the break. For us, it was more like five minutes. Uh, If you do like that music, by the way, uh, check out my friend James Blake, who made it for us. He is at 
J.W. Blake on all good music platforms. Most of the stuff he makes doesn't sound anything like that, uh, because we specifically asked him to make something jazzy, but he does make good music, so check him out. Anyway, 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 next weekend we are playing Bournemouth, uh, and this is not going to be anywhere near as in-depth a segment as the last one, mainly because I am not a football-consuming machine, so I haven't actually watched any Bournemouth. I have not watched any Bournemouth, so I was going to ask you to... Because I see you've, you've, you've prepared notes for us. Yeah, so what I've done is I've gone back and watched the highlights of the two games that they've played this season, uh, and I've been looking at places like SofaScore and WhoScored uh, and FBREF to try and build up it's a little bit of numbers, even though I know stats aren't super useful in, like, game by game, but... I wanted to try and get a little bit of a picture for who this Bournemouth side are as a team. Uh, so we know hopefully a little bit before going into this game. It's not gonna, like, I'm just, I'm just warning you now, this could all be bollocks because I haven't actually watched any Bournemouth. <laughs> but hopefully it'll be alright. Uh, Bournemouth have played obviously two games this season, getting three points from six. Uh, they beat Villa at home, Aston Villa, on the first game of the season, uh, and then got absolutely smushed by Manchester City this previous weekend. Like, proper away at the Etihad, they, they just got flattened by a very, very good Manchester City side. It happens, and uh, all of the, like, fan reaction I saw around the game was very, eh about it, because of course they got smushed by Manchester City. Uh, so I think the more interesting game to look at, like I think for us, like the way Bournemouth are going to approach the game against us is probably going to be quite in between uh, how they approach the Villa game and how they approach the City game, because obviously they went into the Villa game expecting to get something from it, and they went into the City game not. Uh, so it's probably reasonable to expect that they have some more faith in their abilities to get something off, off us at home than they do a city away. Uh, so in the they seem to be playing a 5-2-3 formation uh, with three at the back, uh, but the most interesting things about that are one, that their, one of their centre-backs in their back three is Jefferson Lerma, who is nominally a midfielder and has been playing as a midfielder for most of his time at Bournemouth. Uh, in the, the two games that they played this season, though, that he's played as part of that back three. In the Villa game, he was the right-hand centre-back, with Chris Meppen playing as the central centre-back. But in the City game, he was the central centre-back. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see which of those two roles he picks up, but I think he will start the game against us, and he will start at centre-back, which is interesting. The second interesting thing to note is that there are wide players who in the Villa game were uh, Dom Zelanke and Marcus Tavernet, who they picked up from Middlesbrough in the summer. Uh, they drop inside and back to form a box midfield type thing with uh, Philip Billing and... Ben Pearson, who also in Ben Pearson specifically in the Villa game to form, yeah, a box midfield. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if we see that in the in the game against us. I have no idea how much this formed in the City game. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest. My source for this particular bit of tactical information is a 
Bournemouth YouTube channel that I found called Back of the Net. <laughs> uh, so if you want to find out more about Bournemouth specifically, go check out those guys. I found them useful for putting together exactly what these guys are. Um, uh, they are definitely going to approach this game in a similar way to Leicester did, in that it will be trying to break on the counter and trying to restrict what we can do at the back. Um, they only got 34% possession at home against Villa. So that was a game where Villa had a loss of the ball, uh, but weren't really able to break down the Bournemouth backline. Uh, they had 11 of their 15 shots, Aston Villa, were long shots. So Bournemouth did a pretty good job. It, well, it's hard to say off one game, but either Bournemouth did a good job of restricting Aston Villa to low quality shots, or Aston Villa did a bad job of breaking down the Bournemouth back line. It's one or the other. Uh, and City, of course, sliced through them like better. Got exactly the number of shots inside the box that you'd expect from Manchester City, because it's Manchester City. Only two touches for Haaland, though. Only two touches for Haaland, but that's Haaland. He's, he's, he's not a high-touch yeah. forward. <laughs> no, no, he's not. But still, two touches is, is noticeable. I mean, yeah, I have no, I have no, I can't pretend to have any takes about Bournemouth. I've not watched either of their matches. Um, I do know a bit about Kiefer Moore, so I'll be interested to see how we deal with him aerially. Yeah, I, I think one way they could try to get us is by sticking him on Saliba. As you yeah. mentioned earlier, he's not the best in the air. So if Kiefer Moore starts drifting over more towards the left-hand side of our defence, trying to stick himself on Saliba instead of getting marked up by Gabriel. It could be Gabriel. That's how his name is pronounced. Um, it could be interesting to see. Um, there is one more thing to add about Bournemouth, uh, and that is that both of their goals against Villa came from set-pieces. It was a corner scramble from a corner, which led to their first goal in the second minute, uh, and then their second goal scored by Kiefer Moore, uh, was in the kind of phase of play immediately after a deep free kick. And they only generated half an expected goal across the entire game. So it's they don't have loads of attacking threat, it doesn't seem like. Um, they didn't generate anything against City. 0.1 XG. <laughs> but yeah, that's Bournemouth. They're not great. Uh, they are somewhat a threat from set pieces, but that might just be Villa being bad at set pieces. They were also bad at defending set pieces against Everton this weekend. So, uh, wrapping up the pod, uh, before Alex falls asleep, it is very late for him right now, and only slightly less late for me. Um, <laughs> let's have a chat about some not-Arsenal things. Yes, this is the part of the pod where you can tune out if you don't care about things in football that aren't Arsenal Football Club. Uh, but I'm sure you're going to care about this first one, because the only thing I have written down for my favourite not-Arsenal thing to happen this weekend is <laughs> Manchester United. <laughs> that was a very enjoyable match. I can't pretend anything else. That was That was probably the highlight of my weekend, for sure. Especially the fallout from Man United fans after mm. that. See, I didn't even watch it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I yeah. had uh, family commitments, so I could not watch the Manchester United game on Saturday evening. And my, this side of my family are Manchester United fans, like, very lightly, like, in the way that people who don't really pay attention to football are. Uh, but there was a moment where I looked at my phone, saw it was 4-0 inside 40 minutes, and laughed out loud, <laughs> and then had to explain myself to members of my family that I haven't seen in many, many years why I was laughing. Uh, so that was that was fun. <laughs> I, I enjoyed myself. 
even though I didn't get to watch the game. My favorite moment, I guess, since I can't choose United since you did, I'll just say the Sekumara assist was great for Southampton. Um, uh, his assist for Kyle Walker Peters at the end there was really, really good. Yeah, I saw that in the highlights clip. Like he kind of brings the yeah. ball over from the left hand side and then plays a wonderful slide ball pass. Yeah, he's just electric. Yeah, I think it's my favorite moment because I saw bits of him for Bordeaux last season. I don't know why they didn't play him more because they were honestly crap. Um, <laughs> really, really crap. But he, he only, well, ugh, I'm pulling this thing up out of nowhere, but I think he got, what, like 1090s, if if that's in the league last season. He was well good enough to play more, but he always looked electric. Um, mm. Yeah, he's a player I'm very excited to follow um, alongside Lavia for them this season. Shout out to Joey Rebo as well. Like, he also scored a pretty great goal. So, yeah. Southam- Southampton look fun this season. Um, so, Southampton uh, have vibes, but I don't know if vibes alone is good enough to keep them in the Premier League. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been so far, so we'll see. Last but not least, this is the section of the podcast where you can tune out if you don't care about us as people. <laughs> For those of you still here, we are going to talk about our favourite non-football things of this week. Um, last week, we made it secretly a football thing by talking about the other football teams that we support. Uh, but now, uh, we are going to talk about the other sports that we do. Uh, before we get into it, I do want to say, if you have any questions at all uh, for us that you want to hear about other things that we do, just things that aren't football about the people that we are, send us a DM at PotshotPod on Twitter, or you can email us at PotshotPod at gmail.com. Let us know what your questions are, and we will answer them in the podcast, because honestly, it's episode two, and I'm already running out of non-football things to talk about. But this week, we are going to talk about are other sports that we do because neither Alex or I are actually that good at football I don't know I'm definitely not that good at football the sport (laughs) I'm good at is swimming and I know the sport that you're good at is fencing I'll I'll let you talk about fencing first because you're better at fencing than I am at swimming yeah yeah, so so I was a fencer um (laughs) uh, I did a lot of sports growing up but that was the one I ended up being really good at um it's also in my family so my my dad is a fencing coach he's actually in england right now um for the commonwealth games except fencing isn't part of the commonwealth games selected game sports so it's like it's it's also but it's happening in london rather than birmingham where the games are actually happening and that happens for a couple sports that aren't part of its its games thing i don't really understand how it works but that's how it works um, but yeah, I used to fence for the national team in a past life. Now it feels like a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I took a break from the sport for lots of reasons, including, um, my degree and stuff and, and yeah, our team kind of falling apart. Um, I'm a foilist that was making it. So yeah, that, that's my, that's my sort of other sport. I guess now I'm a coach. So I actually have some athletes up there that are fencing. Um, and yeah. That is, that's me. I'm, I'm more interested to hear about your swimming, though. So, I was never anywhere near as good a swimmer as you were a fencer. Like, let's get that out there right off the bat. Uh, <laughs> I, like, the best I ever was, was at, I got to regional level. So, like, within the region of England, where I live in, I was, um, yeah, I, I got to that competition 
for my event, which was 50 Freestyle, when I was 14, and I came, like, second last out of, like, 50, because I was never that good. Um, like, like you, I've become a coach now. Uh, so okay. I've been I've been teaching swimming since I was like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen because my siblings also went to the same club as me. Uh, so okay. and they were in the earlier classes, so I would like volunteer alongside their classes. And then when I became sixteen and I could do my teaching badges, I did my teaching badges, and then I did my first coaching badge. So teaching and coaching are different things in swimming. I did my teaching badges when I was at sixteen, then eighteen, and I did my first coaching badge this year. Uh, so I am a level two swimming teacher and a level one coach. Uh, I do work with my swim club. I was captain of the swim club, my local swim club for like two or three years. Uh, and I still go back there and do work with them every now and again. Uh, they now have swimmers who are better than I ever was. <laughs> when, when, when it was when I, when I was coming through at my swim club, like I, I was like the great hope, great prospect because I made it to regionals. Like I was our first swimmer at regionals in like seven years. Uh, but, like, the guys that we have now, they are, like, regular regional swimmers knocking on the door of national competition. Uh, so, like, we've got some really, really special swimmers coming through now. Uh, and I'm fortunate enough to get to yell at them to do dolphin kicks off of their tumble turns. So it's it's a, it's a lovely time. I ain't got a... I, I'm not going to, like, Commonwealth coaching or anything. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we actually have... I, I was coaching... My, I started coaching at seventeen, so not as not as young as you, but we have we have that in common too. Um, so I've been coaching a long time now, but mm. but yeah, that that's really cool to hear. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I'm a really crap swimmer. I used to be part of a <laughs> water polo team that our coach. This was when I was like twelve, but mm. he called us the sinking hippos. So like, <laughs> the, I was never a good swimmer. I was a much better runner back then, mm. um, and like rugby player i guess but so yeah so swimming was not my thing but i was very passionate about it just not very good yeah there's one thing that like uh while prepping for this pod i i realized which i think is pretty cool uh and that is that like analyzing swimming stroke technique which obviously i have to do a lot uh and analyzing football tactics there's some quite fun parallels there so uh a little view in behind the scenes uh i haven't done much uh, tactical analysis before like this podcast started I've very much been the kind of person probably like you listening who uh, like just watches all the other people do it on Twitter and thinks huh that's nice um, so yeah like when I sat down to start doing this podcast Alex actually sent me a checklist of things to look for when watching a game that I could use to kind of give myself a helping hand when looking for something to do and when I'm coaching swimming and I'm looking at a swimmer's technique, I have something very similar. Uh, when we were doing, it was more formalized when I was doing my teaching badges and my coaching badges. We had like an analysis, literally like a list of things that we were like looking for in a swimmer's stroke. Like, is their body position correct? Are they kicking with long legs or are they kicking with their knees coming up? Uh, are they rolling their shoulders or are they quite flat? Uh, things like that, and it's very cool how you can start like like look for similar things in football. Like, do their fullbacks tuck inside or do they push out wide? Uh, do they have any particular rotations at the wings that they look for? Like, what's the role of the holding midfielder in build up? Uh, and it's like, I I just think it's really cool how like there's lot yeah. across sports. It's <laughs> always helpful to have a little checklist of things that you're looking for. Well, 
it's funny you say that for my coaching i actually kind of use football terminology i've done it for a while as well so it's very much like i don't even know if i i don't I wouldn't know how to describe it anyway other but like i speak i wouldn't know how to describe it in any other way at this point but i always speak about like transition moment from tra- transition from defense to attack and transition from attack to defense which is like functionally very like you know that's something that has always existed w- within fencing but i don't think there was the terminology for it um and you know you get stuff like rest defense it's also like sort of things of like attacking but making sure you're, you're prepared for the defense like obviously these are very different sports with very different things but like there's it's fun that you can have these analytical parallels that you can yeah. kind of bring and enrich your own like ability to coach yeah and there's there is like a if you're interested in like statsy nerdy things there is a stats swimming stats twitter community uh so if you're if, if sure you've been listening to this and this sounds like fun uh go follow kyle sockwell he's someone who's come across my feed really recently uh and he tweets about <laughs> swimming stats so recently he's been going off about this guy uh this 17 year old called like popovin or popovich i feel bad for not remembering off the top of my head uh but he's a romanian 17 year old who just broke the world record for 100 meter freestyle uh, and he was like posting like stat sheets for his swim, like in terms of like how much distance he makes off each stroke, how far he's getting, dolphin kicking off the turns and things like that. Uh, side note, we have transitions in swimming as well. That's what we call moving from like turns into your swim or from a dive into a swim. That's your transition. Uh, so yeah, like there, there's lo- lots of cool little parallels. And if you like, if you want to do swimming stats, uh, follow Carl Sockwell. <laughs> I love that you, you thought our listeners really want to know about swimming stats. That's what they came here for. Because hey. we didn't have enough football stats here, so let's let's give them the the swimming stats. No, yeah, you, they might do. They like I don't know. I I yeah. Like maybe there's other swimmers <laughs> listening to this podcast who never yeah. know that stats for swimming really existed. I mean, I, I would I would do the same for fencing, but it's not it's not a real sport, so there's there's no <laughs> <laughs> there's no stats community yet. Um, but but yeah. Uh, so, I, I'm sure we'll make one eventually. You, you've got to be the pioneer. Start bringing your laptop. It, it has it has started coming through. I'm, a, I'm it's exciting from a very nerdy aspect. My dad is very excited about it. I will say, but yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's just about it for this week's pot shot pod. Uh, we got to end it here so Alex Collins can go and get his beauty sleep. But thank you very much for listening. While we're here, thanks so much for the great reception on the first episode it's been lovely to hear how many people have enjoyed the pod and have been looking forward to seeing what we do next so we hope you enjoyed this one too uh, of course don't forget to follow myself at alex towels or alex at alex frco on twitters or you can follow the show itself at pot shop pod send us any questions that you have via dm on there or on email at potshoppod at gmail.com. The music for this episode was made by the wonderful James Blake. You can find him at JW Blake on all your favourite music platforms. And we will be back next week to cover Arsenal against Bournemouth and then Arsenal against Fulham. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>